Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an incredibly interesting conversation to share with you. I just had the opportunity to speak with Xander Smith. Xander is a digital artist who has worked on a number of interesting projects, including American Horror Story, Aquaman, Godzilla vs. Kong, and Star Wars The Mandalorian. He has uh, created some amazing things in his time and in this conversation, we talked about the future of digital art, the overlap into other fields like virtual reality, blockchain, uh, and amongst another number of other things. Overall, I, this was enlightening and very interesting to me, and I'm sure it will be to you as well. I encourage you to follow Xander's artwork and, and follow his uh, you know, career online. I think he makes some really amazing stuff and I think you're going to love it. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Xander Smith. Hey, Xander, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So for the audience out there who maybe is not entirely familiar with your work just yet, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, what it is that you do today? Yeah, for sure. I'm a digital artist. Uh, I have a background as a concept artist and 3D artist working in film, video games, television, um, and right now I'm a founding member and the lead artist at a studio called Eliza Technologies, where we're bringing deep learning and AI into the animation space. Um, and then I'm working on a variety of other projects, you know, related to film, television, um, you know, design, uh, but then also kind of getting into the space of, you know, what can deep learning do to kind of elevate designers and uh, 3D artists, animators, things like that. So, damn, lots of cool things. That's, yeah, certainly. Um, it's it's pretty amazing these days how much art and technology has started to uh, you know sort of overlap, and it seems like you're definitely at the forefront of that. Where did that uh, where did that sort of overlap begin in your life? Well, when when were you starting? To, when did you sort of dive into digital art and you, know, you describe yourself as a digital artist? When did that sort of begin for you, and, and where have you seen it uh, evolve from when you started? Man, yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm very lucky, you know, to be in this space because, you know, I'm, I'm a designer uh, at heart. And so for the longest time, I kind of viewed technology as, <laughs> you know, kind of a hurdle to get through to get to the creative part. And it's only kind of recently that, you know, maybe this is just a feature of, uh, you know, my own um, aptitude or lack thereof, you know, in regards to technology. But um recently it has actually kind of felt like it's been able to elevate the design process and actually kind of be a part of that maybe that's just the state of technology but um you know originally i wanted to do um more so like traditional artwork um and that might have gone in the direction of working in film as like a prosthetic designer or a makeup artist you know doing like you know like star trek um you know aliens things like that um and then i kind of quickly realized uh, i was out um, touring Los Angeles when I was 18, 
uh, checking out all the schools here and I found the Noman School of Visual Effects. And I kind of realized that we're now going into a time where you can design anything and everything yourself, right? So there's no longer the gatekeepers like these, you know, large companies or people with millions of dollars to design and create, you know, the characters, the environments, the, you know, the experiences of the future. And so I kind of, you know, begrudgingly started to kind of fuse the two together. And I was like, all right, let me try to get, you know, a little more technically savvy. So I went to that school. I went to another school kind of at the same time and uh, tried to build those two skill sets up together. And uh, yeah, here I am, you know, foremost a designer, but I really try to kind of keep my, uh, my attention on what are the big plays in tech at the moment. It's a very interesting uh, skill stack. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term, but uh, yeah. a, a previous guest on the podcast, Scott Adams, he's the creator of the Dilbert cartoon. Oh yeah, um, actually, yeah. He uh, he has you know the term the skill stack, where basically you know, like just being an artist is one thing. Also, you know, having an understanding of you know uh, technology is another. But to combine the two can create a, a really lethal combination. It sounds like you've been able to do that. I mean, from Here's the so thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, for some of the projects that you've worked on, you know, like some, some big name stuff, uh, like the Mandalorian, I'm sure people here, you know, it's sort of very current and as well as a, a number of other things, which I'll list, uh, it, it's, you know, like you said, you, there's no, none of those gatekeepers. So you sort of, it sounds like you saw the opportunity and, and just, you know, created stuff that, that was able to get accepted and utilized. And, uh, you know, like, I guess, uh, is, is that unique to this time, you know, where, where the, where the, you know, the, the gatekeepers are, uh, you know, or, or the overall, the bar is, is lower where more people can get involved or, or what do you, you know, uh, what else would you accredit to that? Oh man, that's a good question. I, I mean, my first instinct is to say that it is totally a feature of the time, but I don't know, something about that strikes me as wrong because, I mean, you constantly look back at, you know, every era where people, you know, it really takes uh, kind of the, the creative personality types mixed with the kind of technical and industrious personality types to get the, you know, the content, the entertainment, the storytelling of the future. So, you know, it could just be that we're in a time when that kind of, you know, personality features just accelerated, you know, just yes. due to the fact of, you know, us being so interconnected, you know, really our global society for the first time. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I'll have to think on that more. Yeah. I mean, not to discount, you know, your, your phenomenal talents. It's, it's more <laughs> just a question of like, uh, could you have imagined this happening? Like if you were in the same situation 20 years ago, oh, you know, it's man. like, I guess, what would it be the same situation or the same opportunities? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, even a year ago, you know, I mean, some of the, uh, you know, the technology that I'm able to work with, with uh, my coding team, I mean, we're on the forefront of new things like every single day, you know, so many artists are. Um, and so it's like unfathomable to think that, you know, only a few years ago, we would have the types of technology to create the characters that we're all now used to seeing, you know, across all of our, uh, you know, various media platforms. It's only going to get better, too. It's, uh, it's wild. Yeah. So it sounds like, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're involved with AI animation design, which, uh, in my mind, you know, it's just, it sounds like magic, you know, if something's able to be, you know, if a computer is able to create some, something that I think, you know, if you were to go back another couple of decades, it would be like, Oh, only a human could have possibly designed this. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how that works and what your, what your involvement is in that, in that field? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be honest with you, it's, it, 
looks like magic to me as well. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm able to kind of work with the, uh, the coding team that is able to kind of bring these ideas to life. And they're able to kind of use, you know, my 3D artwork to fuel that. And then we'll kind of get, you know, the output um, that is that, you know, beautiful combination of the design, but then the tech that's able to, you know, how would you say that, you know, bring the design to life. Um, so yeah, I mean, my role, you know, I'm the designer and I got to work closely with the tech team to make sure that whatever the design is, so just to maybe kind of get specific, um, sure. you know, if we're going to work on a character, you know, I'll sit down with the, the creative side and kind of figure out, all right, what does this character need to look like that communicates their personality and their, you know, their world experience and, you know, who they are, bring that design to life. Um, you know, a lot of times that will be a little bit more of the traditional pipeline, you know, I'll be painting in Photoshop, figuring out what it looks, feels like, how audiences are going to relate to that, you know, bring in like the psychological element to it. Um, and then we'll go into 3D and then that's when I would say it starts getting really technical because <clears throat> not only is it 3D that can go through a traditional kind of animation pipeline, you know, with uh, riggers, animators, texture artists, you know, 3D modelers. Um, so you can go that direction, but we also want to make sure that it is able to be learned by one of our deep learning systems. And so that that deep learning system can do very specific things with that 3D character, right? So, you know, you think about like, you know, my favorite example is uh, Gollum from Lord of the Rings, right? Okay. It's like on the cutting edge, um, who's the actor, Andy Serkis, that brought him to life. You know, he had to wear like wild, um, you know, motion capture suits and these rigs, and he still had to perform all the way through that. And then all that data was given to, you know, these technical teams that are, you know, hundreds of people. And then, you know, the, the final artistry of the animation is put, you know, on top of that. And then what you see, you know, the final product of, you know, hundreds of thousands of man hours, computing hours, you know, is this unbelievable character that even though it's CGI, we still relate to it in a very, real human sense and that's you know through everything from the initial design phase through you know the actor that's able to give it the nuances to the artistry of the animation on top and so really what we're doing is we're trying to take all of those pieces to the puzzle and teach them to a series of um, generative deep learning systems and so what that's enabling us to do to kind of get back to the point of not having to go through the gatekeepers and not that gatekeepers are any particular people, but gatekeepers just being, you know, this technology is incredibly expensive to pull off something that's mm -hmm. aesthetically pleasing. But we're wanting to take all of that and be able to give it to, you know, the layman so that, you know, now we're seeing small groups of artistic teams can work with, uh, you know, people on the technical side and still create world-class content that really, um, you know, really inspires people and, uh, you know, does storytelling that, you know, in ways that only humans can. So, so what is it about the deep learning, uh, you know, systems that, what are they taking from a 3d model that, you know, like, like, or what is the direction that they can go with that model? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> you know, any direction, but for the time being, you know, a lot of it is, uh, it's pretty simple. It's just trying to figure out, um, <clears throat> You know, when you think about, you know, like say yours or my face here, um, we want to be able to teach that face to um, a generative system. And so if the if the system can learn, you know, my face from like a front angle, side angle, you know, all these different angles, um, 
then it can start building reconstructions of just my face, right? In the same way that, you know, a, a sculptor might, you know, sculpt it out of clay, or I would sculpt it digitally using a program like ZBrush. Um, and so when a system can do that, it can start, you know, building these heads. Um, I, I say heads because we're kind of specifically in the character space. Um, sure. But, you know, it could be building anything. Um, and so then from there, it's like, all right, once it learns the head from every angle, now it needs to learn, you know, this happy facial expression from every angle. Now it needs to learn the sad one, you know, and then it starts picking up all the nuance of speech. And then before you know it, you know, it'll start building animations. Um, and then from there, it's, I mean, sky's the limit. It's like, uh, do I want to be playing a character and bringing them to life and kind of the same way that Andy Serkis did with Gollum? Um, do I want to let it animate itself? Um, you know, there's a ton of different directions we could get into, but that's, that's essentially the idea. I mean, one thing that this, you know, brings to my mind is sort of something that, uh, I've heard talked about quite a bit lately, which is, so this emergence of deep fakes and yeah. very convincing, uh, you know, animated, uh, material that, that can be you know, indistinguishable from, you know, photo, a regular photo or video, like how, how is, uh, where, where's sort of the crossover between these, these two technologies? Um, I mean, there's plenty of crossover, you know, um, I was listening to your podcast with, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos and I, I love how he kind of was talking about Bitcoin and was saying that, <laughs> you know, you had a great question. Um, you're asking like, where does it get the, the bad name it does? And it's like, well, you know, cause not so great characters are going to use Bitcoin. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, drug dealers are going to use money. Right. Yeah. That's what he said. I thought that was great because it's kind of the same thing with deep fake, right. Where it's, it kind of has this bad connotation because the first kind of groups of people we're seeing using it are maybe people that are, you know, maybe on the, the lighter side, they're kind of just using it for parody. We're also seeing, you know, the potential for some kind of insidious behavior with it. Right. Um, and to me, that's kind of only solely a feature of that uh, video being the most open source out there, right? So it's like you see politicians or news anchors. Well, it's really just because they have the most screen time. And so that way, it's, you know, the easiest yes. to kind of capture for someone creating these animations. Um, but that being said, I mean, there's there's a bunch of kind of, you know, fail safe uh, ways to kind of identify what is a deep fake and what's not. Um, you know, ultimately, I think that, you know, deep fake and, you know, what I'm doing and, or what we're doing at Eliza and what, you know, plenty of other studios and people are doing, um, there's plenty of crossover. It's a lot of the same, you know, types of systems, types of learning, things like that. Um, it's just a question of what do you want to do with it, you know? Sure. Well, what would you say is sort of the, you know, if you've thought of this or have it outlined, like, you know, like a mission statement or, a, you know, some of the principles of Eliza Technologies? Oh man, uh, that's something I should be able to just say right off the bat. Well, it can be, you know, like depending on how long you're, you've had the company, you know, it can take a really long time to really figure that stuff out. You know, sometimes a company can start out with, um, you know, a general idea and then it turns into something completely different depending on what the market or the industry is, is asking for, or, you know, the customers. And so, so you know, I, yeah, I wouldn't blame you for not having anything <laughs> sort of outlined, but I mean, I guess what could, what was sort of some of the initial, uh, inspiration for the company and what were you hoping to get out of it? 
Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, it's so true because we've gone through such a variety of pivots, you know, just as new technologies available, you know, we get new ideas, um, you know, new contracts will come to us. Uh, we're only a couple of years old. We're still kind of firmly in that startup phase. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there have been a variety of pivots, but um, mainly I think the thing, you know, is that we want to be able to create compelling characters, you know, characters where audiences actually have that emotional connection with and care about them um, and be able to do that in a streamlined manner so that, you know, small groups of teams can actually work, uh, you know, with this technology, but be able to bring it up to the level of the artistry that, you know, we've all come to expect. Got it. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing. I can also imagine that just in your business with how fast technology is changing, like I can speak, for my company, like the speed that software changes right now, it's like one of the biggest challenges we ever run into is just, it's like trying to nail a moving target between all these different software systems and how quickly they're updating and improving themselves and trying to find the right one to work with. I can only imagine how much is changing in the sort of the digital animation space that it can be hard to even uh, stick with anything for more than six months at a time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the good things is that, you know, we are working on our own software. Uh, you know, we have a brilliant coding team who's, uh, you know, bringing all that to life. So at least that gives us a little bit of a bullseye, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're also very plugged into what are the needs of the industry and what do people want to use this for? And so, you know, there's a variety of things like everything from like, uh, quote unquote, resurrecting, you know, uh, deceased actors um, to preserving people in their current, you know, age and then being able to to act as themselves. Um, you know, we have a great piece right now with um, we did a test on uh, Harrison Ford from Blade Runner where we did a de-aging test. Um, and so in Blade Runner, you know, he's. The recent one, I should say. How how old is he now? He must be in his in his sixties. Yeah. Ancient now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we were able to kind of get him back to you know that look that he was from the first Blade Runner. You know, so that's like a really interesting road that we could go down. We have gone down. Um, and so a lot of it is just you know what are the demands of the market for the moment, and being able to you know kind of pivot to that. Um, so ultimately, it would be great to kind of get a software package where you could allow every single form of animation to, you know, individual, you know, designers. Um, it's very difficult to do, you know, because there's a lot of different uh, ways that you can animate something. But yeah, it's exciting. Is this the kind of thing that you could imagine becoming like a rapid technology, something where, you know, like it can be, you know, it can sort of render really quickly a, a convincing character, um, you know, based on different specifications? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things, well, yeah, as, as you can see, there's lots of things. Um, but one of them is doing like real time animation, right? Um, mm -hmm. Adobe has a really great, uh, so, uh, piece of software right now. I think it's called Adobe character animate, um, which is very similar to this. There's this kind of, you know, like 2d cell animation. Um, but it does allow you to kind of be a character in real time. Um, you know, maybe when I hop back on this podcast in a year, you know, I could come on as sure. another character and do that in real time. Wow. Or you a year ago. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, age myself. Yeah. And then come on. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's just, you know, such a variety of, of ways to go. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like, you know, another thing that we could be working on. Cause some, some of that comes to my mind, like I I've, 
I kind of fear this future, but I imagine a future where um, as, you know, virtual reality continues to sort of like improve, it's sort of one of those spaces where it's, you know, you could have a luxuriously furnished, like, you know, VR house that you live in, whereas in your real house, it's really just like scantily, you know, barely, you know, it's, uh, which I feel like we're moving more and more in that direction where, you know, it's like very early, uh, you know, indicators of the way that people present themselves on social media versus how their real life is. And, you know, it's like, as that technology continues to improve and like gaming and those sorts of things continue to evolve, uh, you know, that we can find ourselves living, you know, a good portion of our lives in a virtual reality world and to have some, uh, to have like a, a technology where you can render, you know, you could sort of, you know, have yourself as a compelling character that is, you know, at locked in at like your prime age or something like that. It's like, you know, or or you can recreate yourself into some other version or something like, you know, it seems like, uh, seems like all this is somewhat on the horizon. Have you all, have you at, uh, Eliza technologies done anything with, uh, virtual reality? Uh, not specifically us, but yeah, I mean, we definitely share your concerns. Um, (laughs) that's, it's, it's good. You went there. Um, you know, in our podcast a year from now, I could hop on and I could have, you know, whatever, 20 pounds of muscle. You wouldn't know if that's, you know, did I actually go hit the gym or did I just program that in? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think there should be some kind of hesitancy and maybe even some fear kind of regarding where all this is going. Um, And to the extent people are going to want to have, you know, idealized digital representations of themselves. Um, to me, it's kind of, you know, it's a personal choice if that's, you know, if you want to go represent yourself in a particular way, um, you know, I see no reason why, or I see no reason that that should be any different than, you know, having like different filters or things like that, um, you know, having aesthetic representations that are aligned with, uh, with what you think is, you know, beautiful or good looking or aesthetically pleasing. Um, yeah, I mean. Personally, I kind of think that's great that people have that optionality. Um, But then kind of going back to the psychology of it, I think that as far as people being able to represent themselves, um, there's an element to that that I think is a little bit limiting, where I don't think that that's going to be the end all be all of this. I think that, you know, people having a nice looking Instagram is kind of the way we're seeing it right now. But clearly, you know, they're kind of only showing, you know, the best of their life. Um, to me, it's it's more important. What are going to be the things that people actually want to experience with all of this? And the biggest thing to me, you know, working in entertainment is that you're always trying to push the bar for what people are able to experience. And so, yes, there's the representational question to it. But the more exciting question to me is, you know, what are we going to allow people to experience that they might have never been able to experience without this type of you know technology? Um, going back to the, you know, Andy Circus Gollum example, it's like you and me would have never been able to experience it, you know, whatever it is, um, medieval Tolkien-esque fantasy world sure. without the technology of Weta Digital, you know? Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely concern in some regard, but on the other hand, I think it's just going to open a lot of, uh, you know, new experiences to us. I think yeah. it's exciting. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I didn't even really consider that stuff. I guess I'm more fo- <laughs> I'm focused too much on the negative there. But yeah, I mean, I could imagine there'd be some really amazing applications of that technology. Like if you want to 
you know, recreate some historic scene or battle. You want to go to the signing of the Declaration of Independence or the middle oh, of like yeah. World War II. Like, you know, if you could sort of recreate those uh, scenes and have a more immersive entertainment experience, like I can imagine that being uh, truly next level compared to where we're at today. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because I know there's uh, certain teams right now that are actually recreating um, Martin Luther King speeches. Wow. But imagine you could be there, mm-hmm. right? You're not just watching black and white footage with terrible audio. You're like actually in the crowd, like feeling what that's like. Um, and imagine the crowd isn't just, you know, digital NPCs, but they're actually other people who are, you know, in this virtual space actually, you know, experiencing this. Um I mean, to me, that's way more exciting than like a video game racking up points or sure. whatever it is. Not not to you know talk bad about video games, but you know, I think that we're going to kind of see the transition from a quote unquote game to an actual experience. Um, and yeah, it's 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 going to get wild here. Yeah, that's remarkable. It's like at what point is there a difference between being physically there with other people near you? you know, compared to being digitally there with other people near you just digitally. Um, You know, it's like, I I wonder what's gained or lost from that. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's something lost, right? I mean, it's like still a little strange to be talking at my screen, even though I'm talking with you, you know, clearly it is, you know, it'd be better if we were, you know, outside on a porch overlooking a beach having this Mm -hmm. conversation, you know, um, you know, certainly there is something lost there. And I think that's kind of incumbent on the technicians and the artists to make sure that as little of that is lost as possible. But I think ultimately, and I have no idea how to do this, but I think ultimately, if you were to design one of these experiences psychologically correctly, I think that that experience would lead you back to the real world. I'm not exactly sure how to do that or where that's going, but that's kind of my my gut feeling to all this technology. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I wonder if it's, you know, like with any technology, it, it appears like there's uh, some version, you know, it's like depending on how you use it, like we were talking with the deep fakes and, you know, Bitcoin and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like, it could probably be used in a really empowering way. I'd be, I'd be interested to see like how much of the space gets, uh, you know, this technological space gets used for like productive or really, um, you know, thought provoking or uh, emotional experiences that are that are beneficial for people compared to, you know, what would be like, you know, kind of like uh, junk entertainment sort of usage of the of the technology. You know, I, I wonder where that will sort of pan out or if we take that opportunity or not. And I mean, uh, I another thing that comes to mind with that is, you know, it really comes down to the people, the creators that are building the content. And is it something that, you know, it's, I think like historically it's the large gatekeepers, it's the big media corporations that uh, creates or the drunk entertainment uh, model for things. And it's usually the independent creators that build these really amazing other experiences. So I wonder if we're entering a time where there's enough accessibility for the individual creators to have something where, uh, more of those experiences can be created and sought after rather than, uh, you know, sort of getting what's, what's, you know, spoon fed from the large media corporations. Oh, it's such a good point. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that the word of the decade is decentralization. I think yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's the, um, the direction of all of this technology. Um, yeah. What you said kind of reminded me of, if I'm not mistaken, 
should probably do some research before saying this, but I believe it's the uh, United States military or the United States Army that has a simulator where someone who is experiencing PS or PTSD is able to go enact an experience that gives them the ability to something along the lines of giving them the ability to progressively experience that trauma but be able to you know opt out of it at any time and so it, it you know there's degrees of uh, um the experience being voluntary and if i'm not mistaken that's incredibly helpful to people being able to overcome this ptsd um and so the reason i bring that up is i think that's very much in line with uh your kind of thinking where it's going to be up to the people creating these things to decide what is the ultimate uh, goal of the experience. And so, you know, I don't have anything against the, uh, you know, the kind of corporations that are kind of just putting out mindless entertainment. Cause I mean, clearly that sells, right. Sure. Um, now, you know, you have a great example with this podcast where it's like, you know, a couple of decades ago, we never would have imagined that people wanted long form open discussions. Right. Um, totally. And now we're seeing that that's a major, I mean, would you even call it, it is entertainment, but it's, it's something more, right? It's an experience. It's being able to listen to people think out loud in person. Yeah. I mean, podcasting is a, is a whole new medium that didn't exactly. Exist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think that as the kind of bars for entry are lowered, um, me being a great example of that, cause I'm, I'm not technically savvy, you know, most in the slightest, I have to brute force my way through it. Um, but as an artist, I am able to get technical with it because of the brilliant minds who are, you know, allowing this technology for the average user. Um, and so I think we are going to see a variety of new mediums, the same way that podcasting is its own medium. Um, and people using this technology to create, I think experience is the best word. You know, it's going to be very different than film, television, games, whatever it is. You're going to experience something. Um, and to the extent that that's one to one with a real life experience, it probably will never get there, but maybe that's a good thing, right? It's like, you know, you and I might be able to get something out of an experience that puts us, I don't know, into, let's say, a war zone. I don't know, D-Day on World War II. Um, certainly, we would get something out of that, right? Uh, in the same way that if we go watch, you know, a film on that in theaters, we get something out of that. We have that experience. It, it changes us. It changes our thinking. It allows us into... Uh, you know, new ways, new thought processes. And so if we're able to go and have a, a almost a one-to-one -one experience, you have to think that that's going to take us, you know, even closer to that, you know, whatever that is. Um, and it's probably good that we don't actually have to be there in a war zone, but we can still get some semblance of what that thought process, you know, does to our character. That's kind of my way of, you know, thinking about it in a, in a positive light. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I wonder what the, uh, you know, like, like, I think we like, we're, we're learning every day sort of how our, uh, you know, simple human biology is conflicting with like the super advanced technological world that we live in now, you know, where we're never right. supposed to have like this much like stimulation and stuff. And I wonder if it's, you know, like if having the capacity and the ability to jump around between like, oh, I'm going to go to D-Day, then I'm going to go to, you know, Declaration of Independence, I'm going to go to, you know, the Vietnam War or, or like a Martin Luther King speech, like 
within an hour. I wonder if uh, I wonder if that's good or a bad thing, you know, where these, these would have been experiences that would normally take place in like a human experience over like decades. Um, you know, it's sort of like these very rare moments in your life. I wonder what that'll do to the significance of those moments. Cause I think to your point, like, yes, like you could feel that, uh, but in, at, at what abundance does it sort of de, de uh, sensitize you to like what's actually happening? Oh, that's that'll such a good wild. question. I'll let you know when we have the answer. Yeah, right. I know. I guess that'll probably take us a good, like, you know, take like probably what, 20 years before that reality could exist, maybe right. 15, 20, and then another, you know, 15, 20 before we have any clue what the uh, ramifications of that are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Here's hoping it's positive. You know, and I clearly have a very sunny disposition towards all this, but um, there should be apprehension to all this too, for sure. Um, so, yeah, it's important to kind of walk the line between those two, I think. What are some of the, uh, you know, I, I always look at this with emerging technologies where um, like in my, in my world in, in the solar industry, you know, there's always like a couple of things that are like, if, if this technology changed or if this new thing happened that they've been talking about, it would dramatically change everything. So like, you know, battery technology, if they develop, uh, if they, if we're able to move beyond lithium ion batteries and create like a solid state battery, it would, it would dramatically increase the, you know, like uh how much power it could hold and how quickly it could charge and that sort of thing. Um, that's like a, a 10X multiplier, something that would dramatically change the industry. If they developed thin film solar, like those clear, you know, something you could put on a window, like that would dramatically change everything. What are, are, are there any of those things that sort of come to mind for uh, your industry with, you know, just between AI, you know, digital art, like, is there anything that sort of comes to mind as sort of like, if this happened, then everything would change? Wow. Yeah. Um, a lot of things come to mind, <laughs> obviously. Um, yeah, kind of the, the first one that I think of is that, you know, I, I've lived in Los Angeles for the last decade. And so, you know, I have a lot of friends in acting. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I've found very interesting about that industry is I want to say that the arbitrariness of casting, it's not totally arbitrary, but it, it's something akin to that where, you know, you could be an absolutely brilliant actor and be able to bring a role, something that is, you know, absolutely unique. But if you're, you know, slight, you know, two years too old, or if you're the wrong ethnicity or, you know what I mean? Like little things totally. can just completely bar you from that. And so this ties into what uh, Eliza is working on, where I think that we're going to see um, a new renaissance in uh, in film and specifically with acting, where, you know, it doesn't matter what gender I am, what ethnicity I am, how tall I am, you know, whatever it is, I can go play any character and put all of my talent into that character. And whatever, you know, my aesthetics are personally, doesn't have to translate to the aesthetics of that character. Um, another great example, just so happens to be in that Lord of the Rings universe, was uh, Benedict Cumberbatch or Cumberbatch. I don't know yeah, yeah, I don't either. Right, but he did. Uh, he played uh, that dragon in The Hobbit, and it's like for us to get to a point where a human being is playing a dragon, and it doesn't matter in the slightest what he looks like. It's completely through the talent of his acting. And the technology that allows us to, you know, translate that into the animations necessary. I mean, that is, you know, such a powerful medium for storytelling. Um, and so I think that as this technology continues to, you know, get so advanced that, you know, 
people like you and me are able to uh, to use it, we're going to see a whole new renaissance of, of storytelling. It's going to be incredible. Wow, that is amazing. I didn't consider that. Yeah, it's it's almost old fashioned to consider that like, you know, whatever your physical presence is has to be what matches right. the character in a film that you're doing. Whereas, so you're imagining, you know, something where, um, you know, most of the, there could basically be super realistic, convincing characters that are, you wouldn't be able to distinguish between, you know, what that person actually is versus what their, uh, you know, Gollum figure is, right? Yeah, well, not only that, um, it's not necessarily the in- indistinguishability, but also, uh, I mean, it, more so it's the aesthetics of it, right? So it's like, you know, I'm sure, you know, your parents growing up, the same as mine, uh, you know, my parents would, you know, read me stories growing up. Um, sure. And, you know, every time, you know, there'd be a new line of dialogue from another character, they would they'd put on that mask, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I see a future where it's like a parent is able to have that story time with their child. But they're able to actually, you know, I don't know what it could look like, but it would be interactive where they actually are that character, you know, and the child seeing that. And it doesn't necessarily matter if that's, you know, a perfect representation of that character. But as long as it's, you know, it's appealing, it's human, it's, it's you know, behaviorally and psychologically in line with what we want to interact with. Um, it's, I mean, it's going to be a whole new realm of storytelling. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing to think about. Also, just uh, like the everyday person's ability to sort of inherit these different characters. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that I noticed, uh, which is really cool, on your uh, you have a, a digital store where you can buy things, and you can buy three uh, D printing like schematics for different mm-hmm. characters and things. Like that's a uh, that's super cool because I imagine a reality where we're, we're moving you know, sort of beyond art being a two-dimensional thing and, you know, moving into a place where it's like three-dimensional again, sort of it's, it's sort of in line with the virtual reality universe we could be entering. But um, where do you see that going? I, I, I imagine I, I haven't had any sort of updates or anything on sort of like what's happening with 3D printing in that whole universe, but uh, are there any uh, technologies you're excited for in that space? Yeah, definitely. Um I'm a little out of the loop on that industry as well. It's been, you know, maybe five or six years since I've done anything specific in 3D printing. Um, But also something that, you know, is extremely exciting. It wasn't the industrial revolution we were kind of all hoping for. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I don't think it's going away. Uh, One of the areas that really fascinates me is, um, you know, again, going back to kind of the argument of Bitcoin uh, is this concept of digital rarity. And I think that is starting to have some real interest in the art market. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Anthony Pompliano's podcast, but he recently did a piece on um, digital artwork that um, has the same kind of, um, um, you know, rarity as, as, as real world artwork um, and why that can be just as valuable. Um, I'm a little lukewarm. I'm not totally sold on that statement, but I think the idea is really fascinating. Um, the way I think about this and to relate it back to 3D printing is um, I've done a few pieces uh, where it's like, you know, a digital uh, outfit or a digital garment, you know, the same way that, you know, uh, you have a, a fashion designer, you know, design a jacket, you know, I do that in 3D. And instead of being able to, you know, distribute endless 3D files of that jacket, you know, it's incumbent on me to say, all right, there's only one of these files. And so does that, 
I should say, does that bring in the requisite rarity to actually make that, you know, a piece that has the same value as a jacket in the real world that there's only one of? I'm a little tied on that one because, you know, with the click of a button, I can make duplicates of that. And so even if there is only one file at a time, I don't know that it still intrinsically holds those same properties. But it is an interesting idea, right, where if I have this 3D jacket or dress or whatever it is, um, and I say, all right, there's only this one 3D file, whoever wants to own that, if they're the sole owners, well, they could duplicate that if they want to. Um, and they could do things like they could bring that into, you know, a, a new movie or a new video game or Unreal Engine, but they could also do things like 3D print that jacket, right? And so they're the sole person that, you know, has access to that. Um, so I'm, I'm actually working with some designers right now where, you know, I've kind of made the, uh, I would say the fashion piece in 3D. And so because they're the ones with the files, they're able to say, all right, what are the, or what are these files, um, how, uh, what mediums are they able to go into? And so one of the mediums they're exploring is being able to 3D print based on these files. So that's an interesting one to me is that, you know, you can make things that you couldn't do in the real world using 3D, but then bring that 3D into the real world. So that's one of the things that, you know, 3D printing uh, does enable people to do. It's pretty interesting. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine, I could imagine that it, uh, you know, something like that having even the digital rarity has very much the has a very similar sort of, you know, it's like what deter what defines something as authentic, you know? Really, right. It's like it's like who created it, you know? Like you could get an iPhone that has the Apple logo on it, or you get the iPhone that's made in the, you know the whatever like the the off shift hours of the same factory in china um where it just doesn't have the apple logo on it it's like it's rare now one, yeah well there's one that's the real deal right <laughs> right so right. even if they're the exact same components in the exact same uh everything so i mean I, I i could definitely see that um panning out in a way where there's still rarity you know i think we already see that sort of like there's like a knockoff market for for um fashion right now as it is and people right. know the difference yeah, it's true. A lot of it is just the value that we assign to it. You know, yeah. like you said with knockoffs, it's like there's, you know, it's a perfect one-to-one -one representation. You wouldn't actually know. I could be wrong about this, but, you know, let's say it's a fashion piece. You wouldn't actually know. But because we do know, that assigns more value to the original. That's, that's you know, a really fascinating, you know, behavior that we have towards, you know, towards real materials. Yeah, like a... a $20 Supreme shirt versus like right. you know, a $400 one, like one carries the value, right. the other doesn't. It's all mostly because you, you put the, they might look exactly the same, but yeah. it's because you paid the real, you know, the price for the real one. Oh, it's so the interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you probably had a ton of guests who can speak to this a lot better than I have, but yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating uh, behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's a crazy, a crazy concept to consider, especially as we you know, move into a space where I think people imagine things being so digitally abundant, like you can just copy any file, yeah. duplicate any file. So would that have to have some sort of like backbone on some sort of blockchain or something like that? Man, yeah, that's a really interesting direction to go with this. Um, I don't know that I could speak too much about that. I just don't have the yeah, yeah. knowledge. Um, but one of the things I would definitely say is that for the sake of the argument for digital rarity, um, you know, let's say, you know, if I, I'm paid to do, you know, a digital painting of a character for the design for a movie, right? So they'll come to me with a script and they'll say, you know, here's what the character is, here's how he's going to interact. 
but we don't know what he looks like yet. And so I'll work with the director, the production designer to figure out, you know, what does this character actually look like? Um, and so as soon as I have that painting, you know, anyone can have that painting. It's like, they're not paying for the actual pixels on the screen. They're paying for the thought process behind it. In some cases they're paying for, uh, you know, who I am as an artist and how that translates into the digital medium. Um, but I think the next level to that is to have digital rarity. It's got to be able to do something that it can't do in the real world. So to me, that's kind of along the lines of what we were just talking about in 3D printing, where if it can be 3D printed in the real world, it doesn't have the same degree of digital rarity. Whereas if it's something that can only exist in the digital world. So say right now, I actually on my screen, I have uh, a piece I'm working on with, um, it's, it has like, you know, just typical, you know, fashion. It's like a uh, shirt and, you know, leggings, but the leggings are actually made out of something that could only exist in the properties of stone. And so it's like, that's mm. something that couldn't be printed, right? You couldn't have leggings where I could actually walk and, you know, the leggings would actually bend and fold and conform to my, you know, my anatomy, yeah. except in the digital world, it can have the properties of, you know, I'm using this stone granite material and it can actually walk. And so it kind of messes with your, your psyche. You're watching this thing and you're like, it, that can't exist. It doesn't look quite right, but it's so aesthetically appealing. You know, you want it to be able to exist and it's not something that could exist in the real world. So to me, that's kind of the other side of the digital rarity argument is that things in the digital world can only exist there. And strictly because of that function gives them a lot of value. Uh, that is awesome to, to imagine, you know, sort of just the, it, you have to sort of like unhinge your, your own uh, way of thinking about things. Cause yeah. really in the digital world, anything could exist. So yeah, like I've never considered uh leggings that have the, the properties of granite or whatever. So <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, like, it's such a random example. It just happens to be, <laughs> but that's cool. You know, it's like, you could have things that uh, defy the laws of, of, you know, real physics. If you can uh, recreate it in the digital world, that's, that's crazy. That's what I should have said. Yeah. You can defy the laws of physics in the digital world um, and have that be something very aesthetically appealing. Yeah. So that's, and yeah, that's the side. I could see there is something where it's like, you know, it, there could be even more digital rarity to it if you could trace the source or the creator of it and validate that, you know, similar to like how you can validate. I don't know. I'm not like an expert on blockchain either, but like sort of these days, if you had knockoff Yeezys versus real Yeezys, you know, people might not be able to tell the difference. And right. so to some degree you can fake it. Whereas in the digital world with, uh, you know, some sort of like authentic, you know, some sort of process or system of authenticating the file or the art or whatever to who actually created it, you could guarantee that it's, it's actually rare as opposed to these days you could get away with a knockoff. Whereas if there's sort of like that, you know, properties of the file uh, embedded in there somewhere that, you, you know, you know that there's, this is, there's no way for it to be a knockoff. It's pretty, right. pretty interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's the um, the blockchain technology side to it. Um, yeah. I mean, that would have to be totally incumbent on people truly caring who the original creator was, right? Like, to the I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine like the same way you'd want to see like, like in the in the fine art world, right? Like there's, right. there's the who, you know, is it a Monet painting? Or is right. it someone's 
recreation of a Monet, if you could know for certain that this is the authentic one, you know, there's cases where there's knockoffs hanging in museums. Nobody knows the difference. Right. Uh, but they'll still sell for, you know, right. it can still sell for tens of thousands, hundred thousands, whatever. Uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of crazy stories out there of, of that sort of situation oh, yeah. occurring. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious, you know, it seems like if, if, uh, if there's sort of a backbone to the technology, uh, that, that can authenticate the source that maybe things could even that could probably even multiply its value more so than it ever could in the the you know modern physical world Matt, it's such a good point because you know as you said with like museums they don't always hang the original pieces i yeah. actually don't know if this is true but i've heard that you know the mona lisa they can't have the original out there it's it's, it's too risky right i would be surprised oh uh, yeah and it's like and maybe the, the sole reason I actually don't know that's true is because they can't confirm it because the yeah. second they did, you know, interest in going and seeing that piece would immediately tank. So it would be very interesting, you know, what you're saying, if you could authenticate pieces of artwork to know, no, this is the piece of art, don't worry. You know, that would keep people's interest in it, you know, really high. That's an interesting thought, man. I, I really need to, you know, start applying that to what I'm working on. I'm sure, you know, it'll keep coming back around or as time goes on. I mean, you said yourself, you know, with, with some of the projects that you're working on, it's it's not so much the uh, the pixels on the screen, but it's they're paying you for your thought process. So if it's Definitely. like, you know, uh, you have the Xander Smith, you know, uh, thought process associated <laughs> with it, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of etched in stone in a way. Right, exactly. Yeah, hopefully that'll uh, be worth a little bit more soon here. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So, I mean, what else do you have going on in the future? What, what's coming down the pipeline for you? And what, what are you most excited about sort of in the next, uh, you know, let's say next like year or so? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things I'm working on right now that I think is really cool, I'm working with a group of developers um, who built... Uh, artreader.com, which anyone can go actually use right now. If you go, uh, you know, check any of my bios, you can get a link for a special discount. But uh, Artreader uh, is a generative adversarial network uh, that allows you to upload could, your- Could you break that down, the generative adversarial network? Yeah, GAN, um, generative adversarial network. So basically uh, it's just a network that takes an input image and then it's double checking that image against itself. That's the adversarial uh, nature of it. And as it's double checking, what it's doing is it's generating new imagery based off that. And then it just goes through a checking process with itself to determine, all right, this is a new image, but is it close enough to the original that it's, you know, you have different classifications to distinguish if it's a desired result. And so basically it's just a system that is able to generate entirely new imagery based on input imagery. Um, so basically all that is to say, you know, me as the artist, I'll get a script that says, you know, we want to design, you know, a character who is, you know, let's say half Norwegian, half African, they're this age, uh, they're this gender, you know, and they have all these other characteristics, right? And so then I would be paid to go, you know, paint what that character would look like. And the kind of design process usually takes a very long time, right? I mean, when you think about you know, when you really connect with what a character is, what they look like, you know, that's something that's very deep, you know, intrinsic uh, to the human experience. And so it's quite the process to kind of figure out, you know, what's the right character that's going to relay this emotion and the storytelling and this, you know, the, this, this moment in time, you know, and really relate to the audience. 
Um, and so with kind of the current state of production, you know, we got to get these answers very quickly, right? You know, when you're making a, you know, you know, a multi-million dollar film, you got to make those decisions in a way that is able to get that pipeline moving. Um, sure. And so using technology like Art Reader, what that allows me to do is, you know, instead of I could be, you know, working on a sketch for days and days and days. And at the end of that process, we realize, you know what, that sketch of the character doesn't work in the script because of A, B, and C reasons. But with something like Art Reader, what I can do is I can upload images of, what did we say? It's a character who's Norwegian, African, you know, this age, this gender. So I can upload those images and I can start mixing them, matching them. You know, I'll play with sliders to like, you know, um, make them a little older, make them younger, make them more feminine, make them, you know, make the face wider you know, add a little bit of blue pigment, add a little bit of this ethnicity. And I can try hundreds of variations of a character. Um, and that just allows, you know, whole new worlds of the design process. And we can really figure out what is the right design for this script, for this movie, for audiences interaction. Um, one of the amazing things I've been doing with it is, you know, I'll be working on a character and I'll get, you know, a hundred different designs of the character. And I'll show that page of a hundred different designs to like, you know, close friends of mine or other people in the production. And it's so fascinating to watch, you know, their eyes will scan through and then boom, they'll all center on, you know, this one or that one. And you know, okay, those features in that combination with those attributes had something special, you know, that had to do with, you know, when they read the script and they go to that. And so, you know, a lot of people kind of view this technology as like, oh, it's going to take my job. What's the point of being an artist when a computer can just design it? I think that's totally the wrong way to think about it. I think what it allows us to do is go through the design process at such a faster speed that it allows us to really hone in on what the right design is for the project. And so projects like artreader.com, um, I think are going to be, you know, huge for, uh, you know, like we said, bringing this technology to, to the everyman to create the right designs that are going to sit well for the right experiences for the right audience. So it's another thing I'm working on that, you know, really excites me. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, it sounds like, uh, and is that like a collaborative environment or is that like, you know, like if all of your creations are in there, is that like a whole network of creations are involved? Man, I, I appreciate you asking that. Awesome questions, by the way. Um, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's entirely collaborative. So what's cool is that, you know, people from all over the world have contributed to this network with their own designs. And every time you make a change and you save it, that's also added to the, the network. And so, wow. you know, as it is right now, you can go on to artreader.com and your creations, you know, are kind of standing on the shoulders of giants of all of these other people who have contributed to the look of the characters within it. Um, Another thing to mention that, uh, you know, I keep going back to the character part of it because that's kind of my specialty, but, you know, using networks like this, you know, we're going to be able to do environments, vehicles, creatures and animals, you know, key scenes, you know, all these different things. It's all coming. Um, just going to open up, you know, new worlds of design to anyone who wants to, uh, to get into that space. That's incredible. I, I think that's, uh, I'm really excited to see where this goes. You know, um, definitely. Uh, I think we got to reconnect in, in some time. We'll see if you can reverse age yourself to, to look exactly <laughs> as you do now. In one year. I'm going to have sure, to now. I'm sure in this space, you might get a few gray hairs, uh, you know, uh, hustling and make some more creations, but um, Very true. It, it's uh, pretty exciting to see this. Uh, I, I'm really interested in this space. And I think for people who maybe have not considered this, I think they, they should, 
start thinking about it because I think more and more as time goes on, this fusion between what creative people can do and the way that we live our lives and the environments, the digital environments that we live our lives in, I think it's going to continue to sort of mesh in a way where uh, you definitely want to be more involved on the creative side and understanding that area if you don't already, because it's going to be the world that we live in. So, uh, you know, I definitely, I, uh, I love the work that you're doing. I appreciate the work that you do and also your, uh, you know, sort of endeavors with the lies of technology and, uh, our reader, I think it's pretty cool stuff and, you know, I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah. Thanks very much, Matt. I appreciate that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, where, uh, where should people find you online? Where do you like to point them to? Um, I mean, you can go to, you know, xandersmithdesign.com is my website, um, artstation.com slash xandersmith. If you want to see my por full portfolio and, uh, you know, see all the other artists in this space, um, then my Instagram at xandersmithdesign. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate your time today. It's been a enlightening conversation and uh, yeah, man, we'll, we'll reconnect soon and see what, see what's new in, uh, in the digital art world. Patrick, I really appreciate it, man. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.